Hello and welcome to Bird Coast, a podcast looking at all iterations of Nigel Neal's Quatermass stories on film, TV and radio. For this lockdown special, we're donning our gold paint and consulting our custard pie experts as we celebrate the DVD re-release of the story that predicted the rise of Love Island, Gogglebox and Vengeance on Varos. On the way, we'll look at if Neil is critiquing the free love generation, mass media manipulation or just really hates TV execs in the company of writers, film historians and curators Vic Pratt and William Fowler, whose work on the BFI Flipside series is vital in highlighting the weird and wonderful in British cinema. So, I know you cover uh, Kingvig in your mm. in, in your book, which mm. certainly has a unique uh, a unique place in, in, in Neil's in Neil's bibliography. When did you both of you? When did you first become aware of of Nigel Neil's work? Well, I grew up as a very big Doctor Who fan, and I used to read this thing. I think it's called Dreamwatch Bulletin, this magazine in the nineties and sort of early nineties. And there was some, I think, I'm trying to think, maybe Quatermass in the Pit had come out on VHS, the film. Maybe there was a long, they printed the font very small in this magazine. It was like, it's like very dense text, but quite compelling anyway. So I read about there and then TV Zone I used to occasionally read. I grew up in Cornwall, so you'd be kind of, it would just depend on what magazines would appear in the local news agent as to what you would sort of read about and learn about. But TV Zone did this um special on the occult which i think i don't know if people know this one but would be probably quite a lot of interest to people now and i actually discovered loads of stuff through that but there was a big piece on quite mass in the pit and that and then i think quite mass in the pit the hammer film was on tv at some point not that long afterwards i think also being into reading occasionally seeing the very early john pertwee's the season seven i think it is of doctor who which is sort of very appears to be quite influenced by Nigel. there's all the whole stuff around that which you probably talked about at some point but anyway it just became the slow journey of trying to see stuff over years when i could and that's you know it's a very different time to now when you you know theory most things are unavailable yeah, I think yeah. Uh, watching um, w- watching Quatermass two, realizing that you can't watch John Pertwee's first season anymore, it's just um, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> just created the entire season. So, oh, you just nicked pretty yeah. much everything. That first episode of Quatermass two is Spearhead from Space. It's like, yeah. oh god, what are those ones as well? Sorry, Vic. What about you? What did you find? No, I, I was just going to say uh, when I was a kid in the nineteen eighties. Uh, as William says, very much a pre-internet time when it's very hard to see things. My first experience was a, a weird little uh, orange penguin paperback the Quatermass experiment which had a kind of drawing of the alien on the front mm-hmm. sort of a wiggly looking alien drawing do you know this this edition john i do i ha- I, I have a copy yes and it's kind of like a tie-in to the um tv version which has photographs in the middle it does yes it's, it's the neil script isn't it yeah yeah, yeah and yeah, i, I remember reading this and seeing these pictures and thinking, wow, this is such a weird, strange thing. I'd love to see this. And of course, at the time, I couldn't see anything. And then it wasn't until a few years later that uh, I think it was on TV Heaven or something like that. They showed one of the TV episodes of Quatermass. And I saw that and I saw um, that Quatermass in the Pit, the Hammer film, was the first actual Quatermass Mm. thing I saw. And uh, I guess... What I really like about these things is this kind of sense that uh, it's a kind of speculative science fiction, which is not only about the future, but it's also about the past. It's about layers of time squashed together and about digging through layers, you know. And I guess that really is apparent in Quatermass in the Pit, but also in Year of the Sex Olympics. 
very briefly, like my, it's funny, I, my brother was kind of a born again Christian in the late 80s and we grew up in a Christian family. And so it was a sort of era of satanic panic or post just a little bit afterwards. And I remember being actually quite shocked watching Quiet Mass and the Pit and even seeing the TV version where there would be basically kind of like occult symbols on show. And I'd just mm. been like, oh my God, it was like, they can't do that sort of thing. And even if I did, wasn't my brother, it just seemed baffling that on like, you know, in the 50s on primetime television, they would have these symbols, which in theory were kind of a cult, which I think made the, all the work seem very weird and powerful in a way that made it seem quite different. I think I think it's interesting how I just read about this stuff and then people can do something and how they write about things that really implants a seed in your brain that just thinks this is really big and important stuff. I guess people write about it with a certain type of enthusiasm, but it just like, of all the bits and pieces that I was reading around Doctor Who, there was something about Quatermass that just really planted a heavy seed in my brain that just sort of felt like I had to follow that in some way. And it was, you know, it's kind of interesting, these things, I think. Yeah, I think and there's, well, I think what, 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 what Big Touch, it's as much about the past, it's as much about who we are. So it, it takes the, the, the interest in the sci-fi element and plenty of people discover as I've, mm. I've I've said before discover quite a mess through the gateway drug of, of Doctor Who but yeah, yeah it encompasses this sort of folk horror and the landscape yeah. uh, and the, 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 the deep-rooted evil um, far more I mean in terms of you know uh, con- controversy you talk particularly about you know it may have, may offend the sort of you know the conservative Christian about you know, mm. occult symbols and you know explaining you know why the devil looks like the devil um, mm. Those, those sort of things. But you know, 1984 apparently shocked people to death, according to the to the to the Daily Express, um, Neil. And it wasn't um, the title of Year of the Sex Olympics. Pretty much had Mary Whitehouse trying to trying to ban mm. it before broadcast, regardless of what the context is. But Mary Whitehouse was never particularly good on the context of the thing. So, do you remember when you first saw Year of the Sex Olympics? Um, I saw it. I did a film archiving course in Norwich. And I think that was about the time that it came out on DVD, perhaps. And I think also they there was a documentary about Nigel Neal, which I think was on BBC Four, which had been made. I think had been made for BBC Four is when they were making these kind of hour long arts documentaries. And I have, and I think, yeah, I think it was. I saw them at the same time, and we were even learning a bit about um, early TV and um, uh, Nigel Neal. But so it was a weird kind of combination of a semi-academic context thing and then just my sort of fandom carrying on. Anyway, so I kind of, I think I saw it, yeah, when the BFI actually put it out okay. first time. What about you, Vic? No, it's the first time the BFI put it out. I'd okay, never yeah, okay, 2003. It. I mean, I'm, I was more familiar for maybe some of the adaptations he'd done of other staff, you know, uh, but um, that was the first time I'd seen it and I, I hadn't seen it for years until I watched it again uh, before we talked mm-hmm. today and uh wow I, I was really uh knocked back by how it hasn't dated as you would expect it to date you know there's still a kind of a real sense of, a very contemporary sense and it's still daring it's still risk-taking and it's still something that you would think program commissioners like would type. think hard about before they commissioned it you know it is and it also it's interesting how when i first saw it it's how brave in the sense that it's quite it's quite impenetrable early on because then future speak if you want to then talk about mm. it a, a bit from 1984 is you know they're, they're talking in a slightly is got to an, at least an unfamiliar way it's kind of like natsat or something yeah, kind of, indeed, yeah, in way, kind of language yeah, or, yeah do you think that this this acts as a, a piece that's i mean neil famously said i think that um 
you don't write about the future you always write about now mm. regardless of where of where it's set does is this of a piece with you know how 1960s counterculture sort of viewed futuristic set dramas or stories well i think it's interesting is that there's quite a, obviously there's a lot going on in this pace but one of the things it feels like he's saying that he's being very critical of the counterculture it feels like to me so this you know basically it feels like he's critiquing free love like that he's he's imagining this sort of future scenario where people just have sex and that's all you watch on tv and he's trying to call time on that and say that it has no depth to it whatever you know whether we agree with that or not is another is sort of beside the point that's what he feels. So I don't know. So in terms of it having a relationship to that time, it's it, it's quite complex. I think yeah. So he's critical of that those kind of countercultural ideas. Yet at the same time, it does connect with other quite formally radical, weird TV dramas that were going on at that time. So some of the things that Philip Savile was doing, perhaps, mm. which are like very self-reflexive. So like reflecting back into the television studio. I think weirdly, when I watched in two thousand three, I don't really remember being quite so aware of that or thinking about that which seems ridiculous now but just the fact that it begins in a tv studio and and you see the audience you're like if you're watching on television you'd be like watching an audience watching something i mean it's all quite this is all stuff you would get back into doctor who it's all very like vengeance on varos kind of stuff but yeah but, um, you know in 1968 and, and it, but i don't know so i think it, it's relationship to that time it's complex and all multifaceted perhaps could you look at this as a piece with several sort of the, the out of the unknown, the machine stops? Is that a, could that be? Is, 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 well, the aesthetic, the aesthetic is very much like out of the unknown, isn't it? They're kind of like quite hard, black and white, austere, mainly the first of very studio-based. Well, it wasn't meant to be black and white, unlike the machine No, stops, that's actually a very good point. Yeah, that's true. I was forgetting that. Um, and I think that's it's clearly missing something. Like if you watch, I don't know... Um, Robin Redbreast loses nothing from being in black and white. Mm. Arguably, the, the the black and white scenes add to the the, the other world eeriness. But here, you're clearly missing the gaudy nature of nature of the makeup. Yeah, because you can tell they're like probably pancakes, kind of. Yeah, like yeah, yeah, like, sort of there's, like a, there's, there's like a long shot of Ogre where you can see like probably his legs have been painted. In, in, yeah, been painted gold. Yeah photographs and the yeah. designs which are on the dvd yeah. you can see some mm. of the you get a sense of some of those colors but i think what struck me about that kind of the multi-layered makeup effect is how that would have contrasted with the scene set on the island with that yeah. kind of just very bleak sort of rural terrain where you got lots of long shots over cliffs and down the sides mm. of cliffs i was thinking how that would have made a real dynamic contrast seeing it in color yeah yeah, there's some lovely really lines that there's some, they haven't got a word. If for you wind, look at the production, the, the air moving against my face. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah I think it really would have emphasised that kind of. Uh, and I guess the Chris shift the second half, as you say, then also cross cutting between the location mm. and the studio would have been quite. Yeah, that would have come through. I I find that I really liked it, and I liked it way more than when I saw it. I don't know, 16, 17 years ago. I remember thinking it was like interesting, but kind of like Nigel Neal light or something, whereas I was way more into it this time. But I do think that the first half is very heavy on exposition. I mean, I guess you have to concentrate a bit to follow the dialogue, but it does, it's stuff is going on. It's very interesting, but it also is kind of like, there's a lot of setting things up as well, I'd say. Kind of reflected back on sort of literary traditions in in SF as well, you know, like uh, from your, your sort of your obvious just sort of clockwork orange effect. Mm. You also had uh, I don't know if you read that book Flowers for Algernon, where oh, yeah. it's about a kind of semi literate guy who gradually develops 
language. Uh, and the first half of the book is written in a kind of sub-literate way where you can barely make out what he's saying. And as he becomes more clever, the text becomes more literate. Well, I thought the uh, uh, initial I think dialogue was a this kind of... worked in a kind of similar way. And you're talking about um, Neil critiquing the free love generation. I think, yes, very much so. But I think he's also drawing upon literary traditions. And for the first time, maybe uh, since like 1984, stuff like that, he's kind of transposing them into contemporary television. Hmm. Is it more then than a follow-on from Machine Stops? Could this be, you know, a natural progression from Neil adapting 1984? Yeah, well, yeah. absolutely. I, I think, uh, but at this time, there is a kind of, there's a kind of sense of, I think probably there's some kind of savage agenda beneath this, but not necessarily about the free love generation, but more about the sort of the liberal elite that produces what we call entertainment and how they decide who's clever and who's stupid. I think it's both. In I think it's like attacking both sides, I think. I mean, unless I'm just... I don't know. I mean, unless it's just pre too. i I'm being too fed by knowing his larger views and content, and so I'm just reading that into it when it's maybe... But I did... Yeah, he obviously thinks the TV producers are idiots. And, oh, yeah. I think, I think there's, and, there's a lot coming out with... I hate clearly with experiences <laughs> at the BBC or indeed Hammer. <laughs> executive film and TV executives are arseholes. That's yeah. Sort of, that's, that's what I meant. And they, will, and they will always go lowest common denominator. I mean, like when you see this, uh, it, he uses similar themes for the, like the soft porn in, in Quatermass. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Which is kind of the same thing, isn't it? It's yeah. such Supposed. This, is, this is what people do and what oh, I, I thought obviously there's lots written about you know he predicts big brother and love island well this uh, is a sorry yeah. sorry i got more it's it's goggle box well to just keep harking back to but like it's, it's having watched in 2003 2004 and then watching now at the time i was like oh well, yeah this is predicting virtual reality tv shows big brother and stuff and then whereas like now it felt like not so much goggle box almost just internet culture and just always being on display at, at any given moment if you have a smartphone and you're into fact oh like twitch and social like media that, yeah, yeah. you're just being living through social media obviously that's not exactly what's going on in you know the sex olympics but the kind of cons- the basic conceit of that is what just every or your every lived moment is performed for other for a lot you know for a kind of voyeuristic larger world whereas like yeah watching 2003 it was a you know we were at a different point so it's kind of weird how it felt like it had updated itself in my mind or was relevant in a slightly different way is, is it telling? I think um, the, the director, uh, Michael Elliott, uh, although he's although he's worked with, with with Neil before, he's probably best known as a theatre director. But when he does direct for TV, he directs generally class, classical pieces mm. um, and had quite a select career. As of even though I mean, Brian Cox in the in the commentary on this says mm. he's the, is, the, is the best director he's ever worked with, given that it's, that's Cox at, Cox Cox at twenty two, and given to who else Cox has worked with, that was. That was interesting, but it's... What do you think of the direction, John? It's really hard to critique, I think, direction on a multi-camera, on a multi-camera setup. Yeah. Uh, you can't go... The film sequences is where, is where you can judge. Yeah. But when, when you're in a situation where you've got five, five cameras, you can't... Everyone's got to rehearse it to hell. Everyone's got to hit their marks to the to the to the nth degree it's only really in the film sequences that you can see if any any particular flourishes of that as well and the so i don't want to go too much into criticizing often how flat things are because i can't do a couple of shots there isn't room but i think there's not there isn't much variation in the type of shots in the studio everyone talks all the time so it's quite stiff well not stiff but it's kind of 
austere. Yeah, you don't remember the limitations. Of no, no, I know, yeah, I know. Yeah. But I, you know, yeah. There's either um, a long, there's either a wide shot, or there's an extreme close-up, and that's, yeah. that's what you can go for. When he tries to do, when they're on the Isle of Man, and he tries to do more interesting stuff, he tries like they try that the long shot of silhouetting the girl's grave as they as as, as they dig it. Then maybe it's just he doesn't have much space. Maybe it's more just that the lines come thick and fast, so it, it, there yeah, is a lot of space uh, uh, in the uh, first uh, half. Is maybe more what it's about. The anything that is a bit difficult perhaps yeah but perhaps that also betrays the fact he's a he's known as a, as, as a theater director also mm. the you know they they ran out of time on, yeah. on on this they had to remount like five weeks later for right. which you know you know bbc union rules and turning the lights off at, at, yeah. at, at, at 10 p.m so yeah it's it's limited but again all tv is limited by that of the of the main cast i was surprised that it's um is it tony vogel who plays nat He's, I mean, this is a leading role for him, but he has quite a, a limited career after this, and he turns up in lots of bit parts and small and small things. But I thought it was for the main character role. And I, when I first saw this, I knew Leonard Rossiter was in it, and I mm. assumed Leonard Rossiter would be the, would be the main character, and he's by far the biggest name in it. Yeah, mm-hmm. he's very much a supporting character of of Nat's of Nat's journey, and there's something. It's it's a tough role. Because on the one hand, you've got to all your your speak has to be truncated by this slightly emotionless, stilted performance that speaks of the world that you know, the world that you live in, um, and you try not to make that look like the limitations of an actor. But also, he's got to portray the there's something different about him. There's something unhappy about him uh, that wants to that wants to explore when he first sees those um, those paintings. And he does it, he's like everyone else, he's repelled by them, but he's, he's drawn by them. But he has this really, he has this very strong look, his big eyes uh, mm. and hair. It's a tough role, I think, to, to, to get across. I mean, not least the fact he looks across Dan Stevens and Apostle and Patrick Troughton in Scars of Dracula. He's, <laughs> he's got that wild look that yeah. he's like, oh, it's almost uh, simian quality. There's always that this. I don't know whether there was much thought in the casting that he's he's more primitive than the others, but I remember thinking that, you know, because I was surprised I hadn't seen him in, in, in much before, but that was a that's a tough role he's got. Yeah, I guess he has to be quite physical about how he's trying to portray the emotion and changes. There is this kind of wide-eyed, heavy-eyebrowed, not quite conforming, but yeah, sort of, you know, slightly over-the-top physical performance. I don't know. I, I thought... He was pretty well cast, actually. I, I guess that, um, yes, perhaps he was cast just purely on the basis of those big eyes. But um, I thought once my main problem initially was getting into the rhythm of how they were delivering the speech. Yeah. And uh, as you were saying earlier, John, trying to decide whether they were trying to do it with a slightly mid-Atlantic mm. accent, because uh, that that was my, my initial problem. This This is what yeah, really I made him think how challenging a pitch that would be today to take that to the BBC execs and say, look, I want to do this. And I, I don't think we've moved on very much, you know, and that kind of dialogue reminded me of the trouble that Alan Moore had with Halo Jones in 2000 AD in the 1980s. You remember that? The Ballad of Halo Jones? Well, arguably, it's, it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's, the, it's the touchstone for late 80s Doctor Who. That's, 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 that's Absolutely, a, yeah. yeah. So you have this kind of dialogue style which the production staff are going to say look Nigel can't you tone this down a bit can you simplify this a bit and he's that's just going to make him more angry and more uptight about these kind of these terrible down yes yeah 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 so uh but it, I, I thought it's interesting you saying how Leonard Roster was a supporting player in a sense and I guess he is but really in those sort of moments of culmination at the end it's, mm. it's oh, yeah. Yeah. the realization oh of yeah, yeah, yeah. Sort yeah of created there you know and uh 
it reminded me of how much I liked Leonard Roster and how he would just steal the show from anybody. You know, uh, if you look at him in like something like uh, 2001, he steals the show. If you go into Barry Lyndon, Barry in Lyndon, 70s, he's, yeah, he's, he's extraordinary. He's only yeah. got a tiny little bit, you know, for yeah. five minutes, but he's like uh, incredible. You just, what do I remember about Barry Lyndon? I remember Leonard Roster marching across a field. Yeah. Sort of, <laughs> About. Well, that's what I remember, not the rest of the but don't you think you know? but don't you think it's but don't you think it's weird that in those roles that he I don't know how you put it really, but he has this very particular way and immediately attracts your attention. But he compared with the other characters in the US Olympics, he's quite underplayed and has a much more kind of subtle like he gets your attention in a very different way, perhaps yeah. you might do in some of okay. these other films that you've just said. Well there's there's possibly I think the the um, the sort of subtext that he if not remembers the previous times, yeah. he's at least a fan. I mean, you see his office, it's got normal chairs. It hasn't got those wonderful mm. 60s blow-up chairs that, that you see in Longshot as a sort of as a shorthand for, for the future. He's got old, he's got, you know, like 18th century sort of style uh, mm. chairs people sit in. He has a, he has a desk that's wooden. Um, mm. So where you can see he's like a, a fan of, of history. Or, but he's the one who explains to Vogel that, the, mm. you know, about the things that existed, how life, how life was lived or what they don't know about about the past he's the touchstone on how things things have moved things have moved on so possibly that's that's the reason he's more underplayed yeah yeah that's but his character in some ways is quite odd because he's horrified at the end and he either has memories or knows about the old time but then also he appears to be some kind of authority figure and is kind of notionally approving or instructing people about how they go about making the tv programs so there's there's a kind of complexity that or can I mean, not confusion but he's almost doing two slightly different things perhaps i think that's possibly speaks of the of the um of the society that, that they've grown up in the younger people have, have come through possibly replacing people like brian cox's character will replace mm. uh, he's proved to be more successful by being simply more more ruthless than uh, mm. than, than, than tony fogel but you know he has a line like you know i've decided have you well the computer has and i and i, and I agree with it um but you have the lines for that the, the low drives that you know they don't work they don't do anything they've nothing to stimulate them because we don't want them having sex and they're dead at 35 and there's something that i think about about Rosti's character that knows that that's patently, patently absurd because even if he doesn't remember the old times he has enough knowledge of the old time to understand why things are going on. but in the, and in the way that they describe what the old time was they describe war as like the lines a kind of tension Talk about underplaying yeah. what what's yeah. like a, something like like horrific human conflict with un, almost unimaginable suffering can be reduced to tension, and that that's enough to go. Oh, that's not good. Uh, anything negative, and that's mm. for Neil to reduce that down. I think is really is really efficient script. Mm. Yeah, I, I think he uh, he also speaks of kind of how um, authenticity or truth or reality is viewed with this suspicion and sort of skepticism. And this kind of idea that the artificial, the banal, the manufactured is kind of precisely what you need to work towards. It's kind of like a sort of, I always think of like uh, T.S. Eliot kind of making his kind of canon of what was considered art that was good for uh, people and what was sort of poor working class art. If you read something like The Wasteland and talking mm, about mm. cheap music and poetry and stuff like that and how this is kind of art that he and all the uh, all the kind of ideological kind of super beings can create. And I think Neil is, is very satirical of that here, that idea here. That, and also very prescient in the sense that he understands that pop culture by this time is already eating itself, you know, uh, and um, 
I think it, it reminded me too of uh, a film that uh, William's very fond of, Privilege, Peter Watkins' film, uh, oh, yeah. which is about this sort of sense that the establishment will co-opt uh, pop culture, in this case, a young pop star who becomes a symbol of the right wing, almost a kind of Festival of Light, kind of Murray Whitehouse mm. kind of organization. And this kind of sense that um, in one of the early scenes of that, my favourite scene in the film, uh, Paul Jones playing this pop star to the establishment is kind of this sort of caged animal being who's in the be in this kind of cage while policemen whack their truncheons on his cage and all the girls are screaming. And there's a kind of sense of that idea extended here. This sort of uh, a pop culture feeding on itself that Neil is reflecting upon, I think. And you'll see it into the 70s, broken down into uh, films like uh, that one with David Essex, you know, like Stardust and stuff like that. You know, this kind of pop will eat itself kind of idea, I think is starting to happen here. And I think also that sense of TV being used to dull the senses of the masses or somehow control them, which is in, I suppose, in privilege by like, using the counterculture in this way to control the masses. And then then that's is happening in Year of the Sex Limits, which was a quite a I think a thing at that time coming out of even things like the Cold War with concern about advertising and that people would be hypnotized to buy things. And even like the Korean War, where they thought spies were being almost like um, the Manchurian candidate, where people were being programmed through um, exposure to sort of tape recorders and sounds and different media forms. So, all this kind of stuff about how the media could be used to control people was definitely all going on, I think, in the larger. And, and, it's, and as you say, in relationship to the how the counterculture, what role that might play or whether it can be co-opted or some of its techniques can be used in other ways. And how old is Nigel Neal at this time? I mean, has he sort of gone into the, the middle age bracket? Or, or what? That's a good what question. Age? So he would be 46. Born in 22. Sorry, Sorry, 22, 22. He'd be 46 yeah. years 46, old when, yeah. he made, when, he, when this was on television. Yeah. Okay, so he's done... So like he's proper. He's uh, old enough. He's, you know, he's over in, yeah. In this stage of his career, he's also had the success in film. He's done the Woodfall films by this point, hasn't he? So it's you know he's he's an old lag on both the TV and film. Certainly enough to know how much he hates the sixties. Though interestingly, how much how much the counterculture liked him. <laughs> yeah. Do we think he hates the counterculture? Do we think so? I think he was that? down on permissive. That's how I read that. It's very much critical of permissive culture because I think that was really coming through and he's basically saying like it has no depth and it's shallow and... Yeah. Oh, yeah, no, I, I, I think that it's saying with an ultimate permissive society, everything's cold. Yeah. You're shocked. Once you're shocked to the point of unshockable, then you don't even feel any, um, any anymore. But is this as much, I think, always about just counterculture and or as much mass culture is you know are we talking about the dangers of just the ultimate fear of of tv is that you know is, yeah well the message is, is going to be more oblique and kind of yeah sure than that right because, I, I guess because it's just like seeing the scene with the guy climbing up the scaffolding with the paintings yeah you know? mm. uh this to me speaks of kind of the, the whole revolutionary counterculture moment you know this idea that you would get your dangerous image on television instead of all that guff they're putting on for the masses right so that mm. would be part of the free love generation right wouldn't it or i guess it's both it's both i mean it's mm. like in the quatermass conclusion or whatever you want to call it or quatermass the 79 there's the whole thing with the god i can't remember then what they're called there's like this like youth cult who are pre presented as being kind of idiotic and um controlled as i remember but maybe john has the well, i haven't seen that for a long time but there's definitely like a comment about countercultural ideas and the young because it's all about saying like the old folk in quite a mass are where it's at whereas the young people are stupid and 
I'm speaking very broadly here. <laughs> I'm sorry, it's been a long time. Yeah, I think, I mean, in terms of Quatermass 4, well, Quatermass conclusional, just, yeah, because there's something very, very ambigu ambiguous at just calling it Quatermass. Um, yeah. But yeah, the idea that young people are a drug, planet people. Yeah, so apparently Quatermass must save his granddaughter from the clutches of a popular and sinister cult planet people that performs raptures. Yeah, I mean, they, it's, almost, it's almost satanic panic stuff. Also, they they perform they they're drawn to to yeah to the circle to think they're they're going to be taken mm -hmm. away by the light, and it's whenever the light comes, it's not. It's just yeah, it's it's revealed to be um, an alien culture that's um, taking them for for um, I think it's that musk scent. It's there's a similar to like um un, uh, oh, what's the um edit this to what's uh, the um, Scarlett Hansen film. Uh, where she's an alien under the skin under the skin sorry yeah where mm. they essentially are taking the, the, the human men are a, are, a, are a delicacy there's a scene i think in the third episode which is i think is lost in the film version that they do where quatermass talks to um, a perfumer and he would talk about how many animals it took to get the musk mm. and then that's where it had draws the parallels of young people who are just fought blindly following this load of crap and will ultimately end, end in their destruction and it's you know it's not a coincidence that by the end of the film Quatermass's dad's army of people coming, it's old people yeah. that have come to, to try and save the day. That's unfortunately, a lot of the message there is lost because that would be highly relevant now up until sort of 1973 when the script was first written. By 1979, we're in, like Thatcher's won the election and we're into something slightly different. And Quatermass 4 is uh, is old even at the moment of its, or slightly out of date at the moment of its, of its birth. Like, which is a shame but here we're at the birth and if, if, if we're talking as, as as Vic says about sort of almost is then counterculture bursting into mm. uh, mass culture so maybe you know yeah there's something is this complex, complex strains going through what, uh, yes what is this but is this the equivalent of you know Lucy Worsley bursting onto the Big Brother set and going no watch this watch this watch this documentary mm. or you know, Gina Ramirez going you know, like, no let's let's talk about this no one's talking about this if every channel was cha was you know was channel mm. five you, I mean, you, the, the the end is really the you know the Sex Olympics is pretty forlorn, where the production crew and the audience are you know laughing and turned I mean, on by people just being like, but yeah, like, but then, killed, by someone being raped, killed, and then someone else killing someone else, and at one and it is actually really a horrifying moment in it. Obviously, it's the but and the juxtaposition, but the same like this kind of obviously you can refract that back to like how, which I guess is his point, is about how. You know, we just watch adventure stories or war and death are kind of exciting in whatever fiction form. And that that sort of trying to critique narrative, I guess, or narrative conclusion or representations of violence or however you want to put it, is quite a kind of countercultural thing as well, or stuff that would have been explored in a different way in like underground film, for example, almost exactly the same time. And, and as I say, in a different way. But not just underground film. Could you not just yeah, like look yeah. at the end end of Which Finder General? And yeah, just it's like, very much like that, isn't it? Yeah. Could you an audience gloating at the, like, at the yeah. end of which final general? Is that not what we're watching? From both no, it almost feels like the same scene, doesn't it? I'd forgotten. It's mm. like, well, I think because of the axe and the brutality of it, it's, yeah. it feels very similar indeed. Yeah, and I don't think any... I'd, I'd expected such uh, sort of a, a shift from the start of this to, to the end. Mm. I think it was the first half an hour I'm into this thinking, I'm not going to like this as much as... Mm -hmm. you know, stone tape and uh, things that you know 
more traditionally floated float, float your boat. But at the end, I'm fucking horrified about what, what I'm watching because of you know, the, the rawness comes from nowhere. But what, but also juxtaposes so much with with the early with the early stages, and like you you feel from that, and through that you get the the central theme, which is. It's like, was it Angela Carter that said comedy is just tragedy that happens to other people? They're not laughing because he's dead. They're laughing because they're not, is, mm. the, is the line. Yeah, I get, to, mm. I, I get to laugh at something else. Mm. I, get to, I get to laugh at that. And that's, yeah, Neil yeah, takes takes that side of, that darker side but, of human uh, nature very well. Like we were saying earlier, that ending just makes me reflect upon how much of a tough gig it would be to get anyone to commission something like that. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Can you imagine it happening now? You know, it's, it's just really, I mean, there's this kind of uh, old cliche where everyone says old drama was better than new drama and I Claudius and all that stuff. And, you know, yes, let's accept that there's loads of great drama now. Of course there is. Yeah. But there are certain kinds of drama that maybe you can't do anymore. You know, you're not allowed to do certain kinds of thoughts that maybe we're not allowed to think in a kind of uh, mass media anymore. Do you think that's true to say? But hasn't, I mean, is, is it a way, I mean, I know Neil doesn't necessarily like the term science fiction, but for want of a better term, that such stories can be smuggled in through uh, and have sort of themes that wouldn't be allowed in straight modern drama, uh, like being able to be, you know, sort of sort of entered into the subject under, under the guise of, of genre fiction. They're making you think about things that you wouldn't necessarily think about because there's spaceships in it or because there's, you know, yeah, yeah, people have got, got, got funny, got funny outfits in the, the the bleakness of that ending is something yeah. that I think is pretty much unmatched by anything you know I've seen recently. I don't know. I mean, maybe you guys watch more new stuff than me, you know. But I, I, I it's hard it's not. It's hard not. It's hard not to imagine that it would be some focus group or some audience server would be like, "Oh, I didn't like that bit. It was it was unsettling and it upset me when they laughed at people dying." You know, oh, they exposed it. That's what. Yeah, that's what. Exactly. Yeah, but like, yeah, that's yeah, the kind yeah, of thing yeah. about. Well, well, I know that's kind of. You know, it's like you say. It's hard to imagine that that's what. That it, yeah, that that would then be allowed. But like, well, we can do it a little bit, but we can't. You know, push it too much because it is really full on. <laughs> Suzanne Lee can't <laughs> die at the end. Yeah, exactly. Thing, yeah. yeah. And I was like, oh, even like that, I was like, oh no, oh no, she's fucking dead. Yeah. Oh, yeah, he is. He's a, and, and it all happens really quick. Yeah. It's kind of interesting. It's so yeah, and then you fed up and concentrated, just from like running down the lot. It's like the last two minutes or something, so much happens. Yeah. And it's then you yeah. find out then roughly it's almost a throwaway line that uh yeah, the guy they put on the island who said he's been there, been there forever, yeah. was a guy who killed uh who was on sports X and killed his killed his partner. Yeah. So they just yeah. stuck him on yeah. there just to just Fuck shit up! Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a bit dark. I mean, that and the, the line, like the pride in which Brian Cox's character is like saying to these guys, like the success, and it's only the, you know, the still point of Len Rosto in horror, like because yeah. he he made a promise, mm. and he's like, and and um, um, the idea of a promise is just irrelevant to, to Brian. Cox's Imagine character. if they didn't have the Leonard Rosto character, and it was just you know, yeah, you didn't that have, like a yeah, kind yeah. of sim, yeah. I, I, you know, someone who's upset that you can identify with or. But that's the, answer. that's the answer, isn't it, to the people that are, that yeah. are shocked by it? You are Lemon Roster going, no, this yeah. is this is no but once if there was the Lemon Roster. Yeah, that's that's where you would have justification in going, no, this is too bleak. But it would be, yeah, it would be really. Yeah, I mean, even yeah, Quatermass Four has a happy ending. I mean, he dies, but you know, spoiler alert. But, yeah. <laughs> well, there you go, so, something to celebrate. But there's a like, there's a, there's an almost tacked on scene going. Well, don't worry. After that, they went away and everything got better again. So that's good. <laughs> so that's, so that's good. <laughs> Which I'm not Bless sure. Fits, which I'm not, I'm not sure fits 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 the mood of the piece. But anyway, that's it. That's the <laughs> thing. 
that's just, that's a separate topic, topic, topic as well. Um, but it's I mean, just briefly, like things. I'm just thinking about like the Ken Russell monitors, and then the Philip yeah. Savile stuff. I was thinking of. There's this one Exit 19, which is like looking at um, morals in the 60s as opposed to like the Victorian era. But it's all about people kind of making the film as you're seeing it. And Ken Russell stuff is very. Some of it's very self-reflexive, and I guess sort of influenced by or influencing new wave cinema as well. So it does. So I'm just probably throwing this in out of nowhere, following our where we got to. But just I'm just thinking about it, its context and it's what it's saying and how it's saying it. I suppose it would. I don't know. It's, it'd be interesting to get some sense of how it was received at the time in terms of if there were these other plays going on that were also daring and formerly strange. I don't, I don't know. John, do you have any sense of what the reception of it was? Um, the receptionist was the reception was generally quite good. There's a right. uh, the that um, denizen of, of culture. The Sun gave a quote uh, after broadcast. Quite apart from the excellent script and big big treatment, the play radiated ripples. Is television a substitute for living? Does the spectacle of pain at a distance atrophy sympathy? Right. Can this coffin with knobs on furnish all that we need to ask? Um, what more and- is there to say? And the Times said, in many respects, Neil was right on the money when you consider nothing gets contemporary reality shows more excited than an emotional train wreck. So, yeah, there's not there's not much mentioned there. But what there is mentioned is positive. The critics like it. Yeah. Yeah. It's really interesting how, uh, you know, when we were researching our book, William, how this kind of fits yes. in that whole trend of kind of very stuff that would be considered off the mainstream in terms of like regular play strands, both not only play for today on BBC, but also late night theatre and ITV as well. Mm. It's one uh, I write about in the book, Star Maker, featuring the Kinks, which is like mm, um, mm, another mm. example of this sort of self-reflexive, pop-will-eat-itself idea. Mm. And uh, that was just one of a series of uh, unrelated plays, which were, when you read the description of them, you think, my God, I can't believe this was ever on late a night on ITV, you know? And mm. uh, I think it's very interesting what you could do in mainstream middle of the evening slots in those days. Well, it's sort of media media critique going on at prime time, and like you know, you mentioned privilege earlier, and Peter Watkins, who directed that, also of course mm. making the War Game, which is two years before, two and a half years, which obviously didn't get broadcast because it was considered too extreme, but attempting to portray what would happen if a nuclear bomb was dropped in the UK and presented as a straight documentary. I mean, I would love to know what Watkins and Nigel Neal were, you know, what kind of conversations they would have had together in terms of what they thought about TV, I guess, basically, and what it does. And, you know, and and Watkins was trying to, in Culloden and elsewhere, trying to draw attention to question how things like the Vietnam War was shown on television and seeing violence on TV and Remind me, talking about the book, which, you know, is that he's uncredited, but Nigel Neal wrote this screenplay for Halloween 3, which is all about TV being this pernicious thing that kind of, like we said earlier, can like switch something in your brain that basically kills you or makes you kill other people. So the the ending to Halloween 3 is the ending similar to Quite a Match of the Pit. It becomes becomes a seance almost. Yeah. They're like this. It's almost like Pete. It's a sense. I mean, God, I've just been reading all this stuff about sixties and cybernetic theory and all the stuff that we've been talking about. But there is this thing in Neil of whether it's like the occult and sort of atavistic things about the past or media that somehow the human imagination can there can be the switch that goes inside a human's brain and then it just does all this horror kind of comes out. You know, whether you know, like I guess in Quite a Mess in the Pit, something 
gets triggered by and funny enough actually in quite mass in the pit isn't it that it's there's stuff people are watching things on television again. that's what i'm saying that's the, there's oh, a similar sorry. ending to to, quite a, sorry, to halloween was... halloween three that's yeah people, people watching it's the, it's the medium of television but again it's this like media signal yeah like turning something on in people's brains which yeah. it, which is this is all stuff that people were trying to theorize as well more broadly but actually Neil does it in this very particular way mm. Earlier, you were talking about you were um, downloading. It couldn't happen here, Vic. Uh, I point yeah. out, for, point out for for his work to work on, for, for, <laughs> not not illegally downloading Kevin Brownlow's work. I'm thinking of Kevin Brownlow. Sorry, uh, Win Stanley at the end with the diggers. Is there something a bit Win Stanley about? No, it couldn't happen here. I'm talking about. Sorry, it happened here. Down. Sorry, yes, uh, yeah, it happened. Yeah, here. it happened here. Is the one in uh, yeah, Nazi yeah, but, Germany comes to Britain. Yeah. Indeed, yes. With um, uh, sorry, no, I meant think, then went on a, um, a thread in my mind. What else has Kevin Brownlow done? Yeah, and, yeah, and, yeah. And Win Stanley. And is there a bit? There is a, something a bit Win Stanley about the um, the, their, their wish to get back to yeah to an alternative. Well, don't forget that Peter Watkin was a close associate of Kevin Brownlow. He was, yes, yeah, yeah. Worked yeah. on. Uh, in that film and so yeah. I think there was you know and uh, Watkin staged those kind of little short war films where he'd reenact mm. wartime mm-hmm. scenes on the streets and did it incredibly effectively and I think uh, that kind of idea of authenticity and the layers of authenticity and the creation of the depiction of authenticity run through Brownlow's work Watkins work and Neil's work you know very much is that of as much of the people working of of their time rather than just 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 those individuals? This is a time, you know, in the early the late sixties and early seventies where you could buy yeah, Ouija, well, you could buy Ouija board on, on MB or Waddington Games would sell things like that. They would sell yeah. you know, self help books on you know uh, on, on psychokinesis. Uh, you know these this this yeah. This, this, well, this, this I guess uh, as and into the seventies that became even more of a sort of. Uh, you know, maybe the dream has failed, but we can prop ourselves up by digging mm. ever deeper to some kind of arcane sort of mythological past that can help us somehow. Because me and William are always talking about the Man, Myth and Magic magazine, which mm. you would just have your nice binder on the shelf next to your goblin teas made, full of nice ideas of sort of spells and sort of how you could invoke demons and stuff. But it was a kind of cosy uh, lifestyle choice that sort of, I guess part of this trend is all about the secular society, you know, and this is why people like Murray Whitehouse were so angry about this kind of stuff is because um, they saw the kind of replacement of kind of a nice, obedient Christian culture with a kind of secularity that weren't going to church. Instead, they were kind of watching the year of the Sex Olympics on TV instead. Well, Nigel, Nigel's Neil's vision is in many ways that day-to-day life is very mundane and empty or boring. And then the, the opposite is this sort of violent, dark, atavistic past, which is somehow going to sort of press through. And uh, I don't know, maybe I'm playing him as overly bleak, but it, they're the kind of polar contrast in his world, like mundane, everyday boringness, and then all kind of empty, vapid, everyday life. Yeah, absolutely. And, that, that and then this kind of atavistic horror effect, almost. It yeah, feels speech, like speech, he just speech. he just flips between these two. Well, yeah, I think that, 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 that was the beast's thing that he did. Yeah. And also Moraine, that one too, has kind of got that sort of touch that the past sort of pushing into the into the contemporary era. And I guess those guys at that time, they were all very much obsessed with that idea to a large degree. Yeah, I mean, Beasts has has baby, doesn't it, with the... Uh, That's, the uh, That's what yeah. I'm thinking of, yeah. All right, yeah, yeah, with the um, nothing can be born in this house. Yeah. And it starts, yeah, it starts yeah. very small with, um, uh, I think it's eggs, addled, egg, addled eggs from a bird, and then 
Yeah. You hear a story about cats, cats, kittens died. But the atavistic horror, I think, works yeah. even more because Neil's so good at the uh, sort of minutiae of what people talking about. I mean, you get the workmen talking in, in, yeah. in, in Babies. You get, well, he uh, was said that he was a really, he's a very big Steptone Sun fan, wasn't he? Is it? And, oh, I, can, I, can, I, can, I can see why. Yeah, and he does do these it. really nice little moments of character interplay, or you can see, which I guess is partially where in some strange twisted version of that is where Kinvig kind of comes from but I think that it's not yeah really, okay yeah it's pulling it off really but I think I wonder whether and that has cynical beginnings I think but I wonder whether at some level he was trying to get into that zone a bit at least I think there's <laughs> there's, there's a, a lot of that with that's in certainly the Quatermass serials that's lost yeah. in the films because there isn't time there isn't time for that I know it's one of the really okay. know, so there's a really lovely bit in in the first episode where they sort of vox pop uh, members of the public wanting to see uh, the the dig site and without really knowing what the question is like do you reckon they should get on it yeah i reckon so why not and they don't even know like but yeah oh, what's, 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 wrong, what's wrong with that and the the almost the horror of the interviewer like oh and oh god now here's someone whose opinion really counts it's professor roney thank god for that i'm going to talk to people but he knows very much that this will be decided by you know almost populist decisions that's what but also just there's the whole sequence when they go to the house that's been haunted isn't there's the woman who reads tea leaves and and the the, her partner is like washing her his feet in like a tin bath is my recollection in the tv series yeah and you get these like domestic episodes contained within the larger drama and as you say when it when it gets adapted for Hammer, Quatermass in the Pit is like so streamlined. I mean, it's almost a bit, it's amazing, but it's almost a bit too fast moving, I sometimes think, or a bit too tight, just because yeah. it's pressing three hours down until about 80, 90 minutes. But yeah. these these domestic scenes kind of get lost, I think. That's one of the things that gets shaved out. Yeah, very much. Also, um, I, just a really basic, the Martians and the spaceships don't look as good in the film, I think. Well, yeah, the, 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 spa- the spaceship just looks a bit plastic. and shady, yeah. it looks, You put that in HD and it's, oh, um, whereas the the, the 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 dark camera work with um, uh, with the pits uh, that's sort of knocked over the Dalek as Kim, Kim Newman calls it in um, in, in the t- in the TV one works works so but also yeah. the, the 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 Martians themselves aren't as scary I think in the, no. in, the, in, the in the film version uh, but yeah it's it's um, it's it's something that Neil works another thing Neil um, uh, uh, seems to predict is Huel um, throughout throughout the year of the Sex Olympics they have that um, that sort of nipple um, thing they drink from uh, oh yeah like, yeah like a like a I say like a baby feeder um it just becomes yeah, this is predicting pro- protein shakes and Huel. it's at a stage when you know neil would have looked at Huel and gone yeah that's all the you know that's that's purely functional food source and no joy to it as well that's 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 exactly a it weirdly, it weirdly makes me think of um the lollies in clockwork orange i don't know if yes it's yeah no, it does yeah sort of ad sat style language but it's sort of slightly eroticized feeding or sort of i don't know there's the very odd scene in clockwork orange where he meets the women in the record shop and anyway it immediately made me think of that although that's yeah when did the book come out because the film was 71 wasn't it yeah clockwork orange is before that because i was mentioning warhol earlier and warhol did an adaptation of clockwork orange um in the mid 60s so sorry did you say vic when is clockwork orange from i don't know exactly it was quite a long time before yeah right so it was before before it was out it was out it was out was out before this i'm going to be interesting to yeah, if Neil had a real connection to that, I was thinking about the kind of how you do future speak. I mean, it's, and then, yeah, like Vic was saying about Flowers Fountain, anyway, that's a whole other mm. thing. But And he redone, well, he actually he'd done 1984 twice by this point, hadn't he? Because they redid it in the 60s, didn't they? 
Yeah, does that survive? I haven't seen that one survives. Yeah, that's um, that's part of this strand actually. This 62. is this is yeah sixty two. As this is theatre sixty five, isn't it? I think the second the remake of nineteen eighty four that he also did was also theatre. Right. Yeah. Sixty five. Any particular performances stand out stand out for you in this? I thought. I mean, we've talked a bit about um, Rossiter and Cox and um, Tony, Tony Vogel, but um, I think Suzanne Needs brilliant. Uh, she's she's in the heart of that. She's got a lot, a lot, a lot. Yeah, she's she, she looks kind of almost Scandinavian, doesn't she? I don't really know her. Um... Yeah, I've seen she's in space. Like she's done some work. She's in space nineteen ninety nine. She's in. Have you seen um, the Mystery and Imagination Dracula, the one with yeah. Ronnie Denimelli as Dracula? Yeah. yeah, with she's Mina in in that. Oh, interesting. Yeah, yeah. She's 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 been in lots. She's been in lots of stuff. And there's um. I think the female parts are really well written in this. Right? Yeah, they they're very well. You know that sort of sense of sexual appetite in the in the first woman who doesn't want the guy to go, and then that sense of the the kind of the woman who plays the supposed wife of the murderer on the island. That kind of dynamic between her and the other woman, I think, is very well. Yeah, that's uh, yeah, that's Heratuff. Oh my God, that woman was in um, uh, which one? A general. Ah, okay. No. There's a nice little as well. Actually, one thing we haven't talked I didn't know, I just looked it up on IMDb. I just saw, saw, saw who that was. Um, I, if I play, if I if I learn my craft better, I can shout facts at you while looking at, um, while looking at... It's all trying to do. You can cut in going how, how you cleverly knew all these facts. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> I have a robot just reading out bits yeah. of Wikipedia and saying, now Vic says this. So no. well, well, normally it's like... It's like uh, well, I have to, be honest, to correct you there, Vic, because actually it's more <laughs> the actual name of somebody. Yeah, I, you, you, you want to be careful what you, where, you, where, you, where, you, where you do stuff on that. Um, one thing we haven't talked about is the bizarre uh, the comedy scene, where people like comedy, they've decided, and comedy is it's safe to laugh, but because this is a base society, we go for the most base slapstick comedy. But the people that do the comedy, including like having the credit custard pie expert, is Trevor Peacock. Like, well, that's, that's it. That's yeah, it. and I know. Uh, isn't that guy out of Yes Minister in that? Derek Derek Foles is is, is, is yeah is, yeah is, yeah is, yeah is, is, is there as well? And um, Wolf Morris, who the previous year had been the yeah. villain in in a Doctor Who, uh, and turned and he's in yeah, Beasts. He's, yeah, and he's in Beasts and they, as well. They've been on that team for so long. We saw the whole of that routine. Very much, we got all of that, and uh, it was pretty much. I mean, a lot of the shows on at that time uh, weren't that dissimilar, I would say, in some respects. You know, there was a, certainly in kids' TV around that time, very much that kind of attitude. Um, I guess being kind of counteracted by things like Do Not Adjust Your Set on the new mm. TV channels, which were kind of puncturing that kind of comedy, which maybe was a sort of hangover from the old BBC light entertainment idea, which could have been my, would have been more prevalent before that independent television thing. Right, but yeah, yes, a lot, a lot of uh, still at that time, a lot of circus stuff on TV, lots of very basic slapstick stuff. It reminded me a lot of the kind of comedy sequences you would have had in Cracker Jack shows like that. Mm. But you so, wonder whether, but you wonder in terms of the actual people doing it, as you say, you wonder whether they were just in the BBC and just got to brought, brought in as a bit of a laugh, or whether there was any. I mean, I don't know, I guess they would not be so well known then, but or whether there was even some semi pointed point or comment being made that these are like good actors or you know respected theatre players who would then in this world be seen doing this kind of slapstick stuff I don't think we can no, expect yeah, that, well, really. possibly I mean there's a, whether there's a physical aspect to the to the skill but you know Trevor Peacock was part of the RSC I know he's part of the RSC at, at, at this point Wolf Morris was a, certainly was an established he plays Pat Masambavar in, um, in, 
in uh, Bottle of Snowmen, the previous year in, in, in Doctor Who. I assume Derek Fowles, Derek Fowles is probably quite near the start of his career. Um, Don't forget, so he, he's going to become Mr. Derek soon with Basil Bryce. He will become Mr. That's very true. Yes, that's he'll 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 that's find fame that, that way. Yeah, no, that is that, that 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 is good as well. Oh, did you see those scenes from his funeral where they put with the family's blessing where they put um, Basil Brush in the photos? Oh my god, that sounds quite moving. Yeah, yeah, on the quite moving with the coffin as well. They put it and like oh and they just said just to show just to just to note this was done with with the family's express permission. I feel like I might have a breakdown now. It's quite yeah, that was yeah. Even the most he was a great way. performer, Derek Foles. He was really yeah, good. Yeah, yeah, like, oh, definitely. The thing, about, the thing about that slapstick stuff there is uh, what I guess the point that Neil's making is it's all about context, right? If you just mm. shot something in people's face and say, this is funny, laugh at it, they ain't gonna, you know? It mm. has to be about context and setting things up in the quite, you know, because yes, a brilliant mind like Chaplin can be very funny, you know? But uh, just some kind of, there's got to be, you know, it's like Ted Bovis always says to Spike in Heidi High, the first rule of comedy, Spike, is you've got to have reality. Mm. So you've got to have some kind of authenticity to even position a sort of cast of pie fight. There's got to be, you've got to care about the people who do it, basically. That's what Laurel and Hardy understood, yeah, right? And you've got to care. And mm. I guess if you're talking about a society where nobody cares anymore, then no one's going to laugh anymore, you know, because you can't laugh unless you have a real sense of, what's funny and what's tragic. If there's a society with no tragedy anymore, then there could be no humour, no comedy. But don't you like the way that they're almost pathetically going through the routine of... They, the way that they those performers go through the routine of throwing the stuff around is pretty lackluster and pathetic, but it's funny seeing them doing that and then the characters that we know who are running the show actually sort of standing quite close by and then wearing these straight... Well, these protect quite industrial uh, protective gear on all over them which it seems yeah. i don't know it seems quite unnecessary and odd well that just seems like i you know like 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 senior execs just standing just behind the camera talking mm. uh, make, and making comments and judgments as as the, as the, as the production but they have to get a bit close though they have to get close to the action but this is the classic thing isn't it it's like the production executive they don't really understand no. comedy they just think no. they should be giving it to them you know it's kind of like well, the executives at Rank Organisation shaking all Wisdom's hand when he had his first first big hit movie after they'd said he shouldn't make one the year before. You know, it's like uh, yeah, kind of, they don't understand it. The, you know, the, these sort of poor people at the bottom of the chain, they have to have something, but they don't know what it is. They don't understand it. And I think it was you, uh, William, who said earlier that there's another thing from Doctor Who you can tick off that has been nicked. It's Vengeance on Varus. It's when the screen goes down and they're like, right, cut it to, I think it's two cannibals fighting you know it's just there's quick just and you've got here you've got the food fight that's, yeah. that's been done anyway and i wonder whether there was a comment also because the custard pie scene the whole sequence which is obviously well choreographed very well film sequence is not too dissimilar to the, the the regular program they've got which is just two old blokes throwing, throwing food at each other and it's i haven't even got um a decent alternative to to, yeah. to, to mainstream program just make it more an know. art sex and sports sex an arts, art, which the center i mean yeah with the, with the the um sports sex being the big program because sport is it's big sports all sport is big and this leads into obviously the sex olympics that they yeah that will, that will be at the end where do you get a sense that the um the broadcasts are taking from uh, is, the, is it a building is it a ship is it are they is it is it just uh, is it uh, is it in this country i don't know that's but they never seem to leave that area, do they? It seems it's all, all no, it's strange. And again, I watched some out of the unknown episodes not so long ago, and so in my, they almost existed in the same universe in my mind somehow, just because of the shooting style. And there's a particular you'll know, and I don't, I can't remember the name, but it's um, where someone breaks out of the 
sort of spaceship or space station where they live and they realize there is this outside world and they like escape through some corridor and then they go out and yeah, the um the machine stops. The, the machine yeah, stops. It does feel directed by Philip Savile. Philip Savile. So yeah. that that does feel. It feels like it's in the same. I guess I've just yeah. said that earlier in a different way. But it. So in that sense, it almost. I imagine it being the same situation. But they know. They sort of know about the landscape, don't they? But they don't really know how it functions and what its effects will be. Yeah, and they've never been out. But they they do really yeah. exist in their rooms yeah. or between uh, each other, largely outfit. I mean, but here this is a like. The people live outside and are low drives. It's what they're, they're kept to be docile and die by the time they're thirty-five. They have no function, and most Which, people, most people, not even questioning why. What's the point of them? But I think I think Leonard Roster has a line in it. They still, or someone has, they, they still have numbers two hundred to one, so they can't breed. Only only we only we can breed. Mm. But then there's the possibly slightly un, un, unresolved subplot about the daughter is going to be classified as a low drive and sent out, and mm. that, that that makes makes. Um, uh, Nat, Nat's, Nat's, Nat's mind up. It's strange because it, again, to go back to Doctor Who, it's got a bit of like Deadly Assassin or sort of, you know, Gallifrey Doctor Who with the with the Time Lords and the Panopticon and then the kind of wildness. Oh, the Shib- with the Shibugans. Yeah, yeah. Which is a bit of Logan's yeah. run as well. And mm. I, I don't know if all this stuff sort of goes. I mean, I guess it's ideas about civilization and wildness, but it's all a bit time machine with the Orlocks and the what's it called in in H.G. Wells's novel as well, with the two races the Orlocks, yeah, the, uh, Orlocks yeah. living underground and these completely separate spaces. But well, the nurse, talking the nurse, by the way, uh, who's is played by Patricia Maynard, who's um, jo- who's Tom Baker's first adversary in in, Do- in Doctor Who. And, Gosh, it's all links up, you see. It all links up. Oh, she's, and she also wrote the Minder theme tune. There you go. <laughs> wow, <laughs> she was married to Dennis Waterman. Is this is the year of the sex? It's the greatest television program ever made. It's up. It's it's up there. But you can I can do this with them. With <laughs> okay, in that case, no, it's no, no, it's good. I like this. That's this is how I this is vicariously live my life. <laughs> no, well, don't we all? I mean, I don't. Yeah, but you should get paid for it. So I have to. I have to hold on a real <laughs> job as well. Not that your job isn't real. I brought up my fandom. <laughs> Is, 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 is I don't know. Um, what do you think? Do you think it's a kind of above the the Earth, separate to the Earth in the space station? I get, I get the feeling they're in a giant broadcasting house. That's how I, I, I they talk down to people, but I get the, I get the impression that it, it always just seems to be an enclosed citadel. Mm. I think, it, yeah, I, I think so too. I think it's a really nice sort of uh, thing where you see all the low drives crammed into one screen together. Yeah, and they're all they're just yeah. huddled up together. And I think that reflects back to this sense that this could very much be a theatrical performance. Mm. And I think that I think that everyone is in a small room and that's it. That's their whole world. And I think that makes it a really interesting idea, especially with that sort of compromise shooting you were talking about earlier. And the sort of the way that we have to have deep focus through very small sets. You know? mm. Yeah. That's, and it, in as much as you can judge uh, a TV director by the very limited resources that they have in, in, terms, in terms of the studio, you can someone who mm-hmm. really understands uh, those and can work with it. Talking of Doctor Who again, that mm. one where um, it's a Troughton era episode where they go into this sort of fantasy world where there's like a the, toy the mind slime. robber. The mind robber. The mind robber. Yeah. And that one it has this same sense that they're in just a studio that's been blacked out and sort of borders around. And I think uh, if you look at early episodes of the Avengers around that time and other shows of a surreal bent, maybe like something like The Strange World of Gurney Slade, there's this sense that whole worlds are in a studio and uh, yeah. what you need to do is to puncture that is you have to open the door at the side of the studio and walk out into the street and this is the only way to escape the world of television you know 
which I suppose then ends in in, in the perfect way. This is in the way that the, the prisoner ends uh, only in a, in a purely meta sense. It's the only way it is resolved. Otherwise, it makes no sense. Yeah, well, yeah, yeah. Or even the Diamond yeah. Show, which I guess is you know trying to escape the studio in a way. That's all. Yeah, so no, I was just thinking about of its time. I'm thinking this is a, of, of a similar time, like it's of, of, of how there was all such things in sort of myself and my brother. We myself and my brother, you we um, you know, we when there was in the 90s, they were they repeated a whole load of Doctor Who's, and we both kind of got quite captivated right, with um, uh, what's it called the time meddler and how, yeah, like, and like almost nothing much happens for multiple episodes, but yeah, and, they, and they, um, they're in theory they're just sort of wandering around this woodland by the by the cliffs, and they've got the strange record playing the kind of Gregorian chant from the monastery over the over the hill, and it, again it's like this weird sort of theatrical empty space, which they're just kind of milling around for, and it's quite surreal, and I, there's something like quite it's sort of boring and yet amazingly evocative, and I quite miss that. Um, but also sh- shocking things that you possibly wouldn't wouldn't have now in the in the time meddler. I think it's in the third episode. Uh, you know, Edith is taken off and raped um, yeah, by, 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 the, by the Vikings, and then comes back on and gives William Hartnell some refreshment because you know, oh fuck it, they, they, it's the eleventh century and being invaded and ravaged by Vikings is is, is part of the course. And there's like and and when I was I think it was January ninety two that that was repeated, and that was when I was so I was thirteen fourteen. And you know, I'd missed that for first time round, but watching it far later as, as an adult, and just going, "Oh, that yeah," but nothing's no, wait, what? It's but that's not the point. The point is just to introduce the Vikings. Yeah, yeah it's an absolutely good show. You don't need it in yeah. the in, in horse as well, but you know, Spooner puts it um, puts it in because they're Vikings, and hey, that's what that's what that's what that's. What, that's what, it was very yeah. sorry. We're really getting off the point here, but it was very odd having Doctor Who not being on for a, a very long time, and then all of a sudden it came back, and they decided to repeat a story from each Doctor, and they were showing them once a week, and you'd start with a time meddler, and that there would be two, three episodes where, I mean, I don't want to overstate this, but like not a lot happening. That would be like the reintroduction of Doctor Who to the British popular imagination. Is, Appreci- yeah, appreciated. The that. Prob- it's kind of amazing. Well, they probably I wanted- loved it, but it yeah, was very odd. They probably wanted to do a four, they had a four-part Hartnell and they hadn't released it on video yet. I think that was- exactly. And it had Peter Butterworth in it. Wasn't and it's great because it's got, it's got Peter Butterworth is marvellous as, yeah. as, the, as the monk. All right then. Well, what do you think uh, is uh, as an uh, inconclusive Conclusion um, to this to this chat. What do you think is the most uh, important message that should be taken from the year of the Sex Olympics? Take your time. <laughs> <laughs> Films I are bad. That... Sex is bad. TV is bad. I'm bad. No, I don't know. Sex is to watch, not do. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Basically, watch, not do. No. Watch, not do. I, I think not watch. Uh, I think uh, is to not take messages from things to weigh things up for yourself and as as neil would right you wouldn't want you to take away some specific message from this you would just try and generate a discussion around it like we're doing now and at the same time he's showing you his kind of uh displeasure with the way that the modern world has turned out but i'm not sure he's suggesting that there's any kind of way of getting out of it i think it's kind of an inevitable factor you know and he's, he's showing us it so maybe we can learn from it or maybe we can't but the thing is He's very cheesed off about it. I also think that the lockdown means that we're slowly all getting hair like the like like the high drives where the men are actually as well as we slowly going towards having a ponytail like the Russell who really doesn't see the ponytail. <laughs> <laughs> that's the goal can we go back to work and then wear sort of uh, gold paint, paint and uh, colored, <laughs> sort of gowns with small belts around the waist can we do that yeah, yeah I, mean, I had 
Well, I had long hair before we started, and eloquent. That's, I mean, that's I true. Yeah, but at least, at least the at least the, uh, the the contrast is good as well. Um, actually, whether I can edit this into an earlier bit or not, I'm sure. But last time we spoke, uh, Vic, uh, we ha I hadn't yet shown you as entirely your fault. I bought the um, the complete set of those seven the 1976 Hammer cards. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. yeah uh, and I got some doubles for me, right? Yes, that's all right. Um, but it's a complete. But there's talking about the sort of juxtaposition of um, the esoteric and the mundane in, in the 70s, the idea that these are for kids and just mm. go with a slightly pithy, unfunny, jokey kids comment under each, <laughs> under, under each one, which are depicting yeah. age-restricted films. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And there's, there's Peter Salis, um, with a, with, you know, being, who's been you know, polled to death with blood, like, eye-staring blood and there's, a, I think he got the point or some shit joke like that. And it's like, fucking hell. Like, like, I'm not Mary Whitehouse, but like, this is not appropriate for kids. I mean, no. now it doesn't doesn't matter, but then it's... My, my obsession of if, similar thing is in the 80s where you'd have things like Robocop and War, you know, and Rambo and numerous different kind of very violent films. And then they would make computer games of them and kids would play the computer yeah. games. Yeah, actually, I just... Uh, just it's kind of the same thing, isn't it? That just reminds me, I had a storybook of June. Wow. And I they did June action figures. My auntie. My auntie Pam gave me and I didn't even know these existed. It was kind of weird. I hadn't seen them in the local shops. She lived in a different part of the country. She sent me the Sting action figure from June. And Amazing. a weird car that he sat stood in. I, and I, I think I, his arm did this if you pressed this button on the other side of his waist. I don't know what how, I that's the only time I've ever seen these. Crazy. But they were June action figures. There you go having the storybook and then like the fat man scares me whenever I sort of the Baron Harkonnen and I don't like that and I'm watching finally when wa watching June and going like you know an eight-year-old can't watch this I know. also it's, it's fucking three hours long it's been and it's been edited to fucking make yeah, sense no, no one can watch, watch June I'd really I really no love it no I'd, I'd, I'd love it in a sense that I can't believe that like, this, this should be good and I'm determined to I would have been nine when my auntie get, I mean I went to the whole June yeah we should get him a June yeah, action yeah. figure yeah 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 and it's like is that Sting I think I've heard of Sting I, I don't know yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> yeah the police we like the police <laughs> in every sense <laughs> anyway wow as well. um, yeah, thank you both <laughs> that's all right thank you thanks John Speech you later, take care, mate. All right, see you then. Bye-bye. Oh. Suppose you've got just a few people to live like old days and watch them to make a show. Okay. Hmm. Have to be run out from everywhere like no help at all? No. The total risk? Get sick, even die? That'd be the show. <laughs> My thanks to Vic and Will, and I can highly recommend their book, The Bodies Beneath. Bellcast is presented by John Deere and Howard Ingham, and is edited by Emma Cooper. Thanks for listening.